Hi, and welcome to this, the second podcast from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode, we'll dig into a bit of the history of the German Zeppelins in the First World War. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss out on any episodes in the future. And if you're new to the show, the first episode, all about the end of the Great War, is still available. Now sit back and enjoy Zeppelin. Everything you hold worthwhile is at stake. And we shall be blessed in the victory we are to win. The First World War is often seen as the first fully industrialised conflict, and across the course of the war, it's possible to see how technologies invented before the war were militarised, and how new technologies came into existence to further the war aims of the belligerents. From the development of poison gas to the use of tanks and submarines, from improvements in wireless radio to the enormous leaps in the targeting and use of artillery, one thing is clear. Each side hoped that technology could deliver a war-winning advantage. The war in the air is no exception. Whilst the concept of heavier-than-air flight had existed since the Wright brothers' first flights in 1903, lighter-than-air flight had a longer pedigree, dating back to the Montgolfier brothers' pioneering balloons in 1793. By 1794, the French had used a balloon named L'Entrepreneur for observing enemy positions during the Battle of Fleury. Tethered lighter-than-air balloons were used for military observation purposes during the American Civil War, and it was during this conflict that a 25-year-old Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin was attached to Union forces as an official observer where he saw and took a flight in an observation balloon. In 1891, von Zeppelin resigned from the army and devoted his time to the development of airships. On the 2nd of July, 1900, his first airship, or more accurately a dirigible, an airship with a rigid frame, was complete and undertook its maiden flight. Damaged on landing, the airship was repaired and completed further flights. However, Count Zeppelin's company fell into financial difficulties and folded. But it was bailed out by money from a lottery, loans and public donations from an interested population. By 1914, rigid civilian airships, colloquially known as Zeppelins, were well established and were regularly carrying passengers on scheduled flights. At the start of the First World War, Germany led the world in lighter-than-air flight. As such, it was probably inevitable that Germany would seek to explore the military uses of the Zeppelin. The French had also invested heavily in aircraft and smaller non-rigid airships, but remained focused primarily on her army. The British had also explored the idea of military airships and had built an experimental craft, the Mayfly, in 1911, but this ship had been broken in two when the unwieldy craft was being taken out of its hangar. The British never really devoted much effort to developing airships after this incident, as Churchill and other senior naval officers took against it, instead concentrating on heavier-than-air flight and using non-rigid balloons or blimps for naval reconnaissance purposes. Germany entered the war with an existing force of military airships split across the army and navy. The German army had the most airships, with seven in service by August 1914. The navy lagged behind because Grand Admiral Tirpitz, Drawing on his experience of how weather-affected surface ships couldn't see how flimsy zeppelins could cope in high winds and vetoed expenditure that detracted from the development of the surface fleet. However, the German view changed rapidly as the need for naval reconnaissance became clear. 
After all, how else could they be warned that the British Grand Fleet was bearing down on their own fleet without some form of aerial reconnaissance? Within four months of the start of the war, the German Navy had built a further four airships. From the outset of the war, the Germans were committed to using the Zeppelins for offensive purposes. In fact, by the second day of the war, they were using the Zeppelin force to bomb the forts at Liège in Belgium in an attempt to force their surrender as they were impeding the German army's progress. Perhaps the most telling part of this episode is that the Germans threatened the defenders with a Zeppelin attack in order to encourage them to surrender. From the outset, the Germans knew that the Zeppelin had potential as an awe-inspiring terror weapon, regardless of how effective it really was. During August 1914, the Zeppelins, mainly from the army wing of the service, flew almost daily observation missions at low altitude, reporting on troop movements and dropping artillery shells with blankets acting as tail feathers as improvised bombs. Between the 5th of August and the 23rd of August, three airships had been brought down by ground fire as their gas envelopes were peppered with bullets from the ground. Whilst the airships didn't explode, they moved slowly and they were easy to hit and forced down through lack of gas. Learning from this experience, for the rest of 1914 the German airships were switched from close observation to tactical bombing missions, hitting Antwerp and targeting railway stations and other tactical targets. As the war of movement came to an end, it became increasingly clear that the airspace above the static trench lines was far too dangerous for slow-moving airships to operate. The obvious alternate target for the German airships was to bomb Paris. The capital of France was a high-value target and easily reached overland. However, the position of the capital meant that any attackers were likely to approach via one main route, and this route was not straightforward for the Zeppelins. The airships had to fly over a number of forts laid out between the front line and the city itself, and these forts were capable of effective anti-aircraft fire. In addition to this, the French took the decision to maintain a standing patrol of two fighter aircraft at sufficient altitude ready to attack any intruders. But perhaps the best defence of all against air attacks from German territory into French was the Western Front itself. Zeppelin Kapitänleutnant von Butler, I have shortened his full aristocratic name and title somewhat here, writing in his memoirs after the war, vividly described the dangers of flying over the static Western Front. It was not pleasant to have that glowing white streak beneath one, the bleeding wound. For that huge gleaming gash across the night-covered world was the Western Front. Thousands of simultaneous shots, explosions, star shells and light rockets kept that streak constantly glowing. It knew no night for years. To fly over that streak of fire meant certain death. Into 1915, the Germans switched much of their Zeppelin fleet to the Eastern Front, where operating at high altitude in a war of greater movement, they were able to make a contribution to German successes in a tactical bombing role. It was here in August 1915 that airship LZ-12, commanded by Ernst Lehmann, made one of the most effective bombing raids of the war when he bombed Bialystok in modern-day Poland, hitting an ammunition train and destroying the entire station and railway junction. There were multiple types of German airship in service throughout the war, with developments and improvements right up until 1918. Generally, each new type was bigger, with more lifting power, and the ability to operate at higher altitudes than the previous versions. Whilst all the airships were generally known as Zeppelins, another manufacturer, Schutlanz, was encouraged to promote competitive development. Here, the major difference was that the Schutlanz airships used plywood frames, wherias the Zeppelins used duralumin, 
an alloy of aluminium, copper, manganese and magnesium. Whatever the make, all zeppelins were lifted with lighter-than-air hydrogen gas contained in thin envelopes made from cow intestines that were treated and then joined together to form an extremely thin but durable envelope. Whilst the number of envelopes needed depended on the size of the airship, it's reasonable to assume that a minimum of a quarter of a million cows were needed to create the envelopes for one airship. One consequence of this demand was that sausages could no longer be made in Germany, occupied France and Austria, as the cow intestines used for the sausage skins now had to be imported for airship construction. The use of flammable hydrogen before the viability of inflammable helium meant that airships could catch fire relatively easily and with catastrophic results. The airships were constructed around a rigid frame and then covered with a cured fabric covering. The dirigible frame was divided into a number of sections that contained the gas envelopes, but the crew, often over 20 men, could move around within the airship using gantries and ladders to navigate the airframe. The airships were enormous, measuring about the length of two football pitches long. That's soccer pitches for our American listeners. The airships required hundreds of men to manoeuvre them on the ground and in and out of their hangars, and those hangars themselves could be over an eighth of a mile long. Upon the return of an airship, landing was no easy proposition. The captain would manoeuvre as close as possible and drop mooring ropes for the ground crew to catch, allowing the airship to be captured and pulled into its shed. Filled with hydrogen gas, the risk of explosion was a very real danger to the crew, whether caused by enemy action, lightning strikes or crew error. Zeppelins were difficult to fly, relying on multiple engines, each controlled by individual engineers and directed from the command gondola by the captain using speaking tubes. The airships carried water as ballast and by releasing it could rise. Then, to descend, hydrogen was released from the envelopes as part of a tricky balancing act that had to be sustained over the full course of the mission. Being lighter than air, the Zeppelins were at the mercy of the weather, with ice and rain weighing them down, and high-altitude winds making navigation difficult. As they climbed, the crew were exposed to extreme cold in the unheated gondolas, and especially when they were exposed in the machine-gun nests at the top of the airship. Then, to make things even more unpleasant, altitude sickness caused by lack of oxygen, but barely understood at the time, would give the crews terrible headaches and impair their judgement. Despite these limitations, the Zeppelin threat had the politically powerful capability to strike at the enemy heartland, bypassing protective armies and striking cities such as Antwerp, Warsaw, London and Paris. Looking at reports of Zeppelin missions, one aspect of the offensive that comes through strongly is the sheer technical difficulty of the whole process of operational flying. This is warfare at the leading edge of what was technically possible at the time. Looking at the detailed descriptions of the missions undertaken through the war, Crashes, technical failures, acts of God and other mishaps are common. Then, to top it all, add in the danger of a determined enemy doing their level best to destroy the fragile ships. It's no wonder that the death toll amongst Zeppelin crews was to run at around 40% over the course of the war. At the beginning of the war, and for much of the next two years, the Zeppelins were largely invulnerable to counter-attack. While slower than fixed-wing aircraft, they could climb faster and were capable of operating at altitudes far above the maximum operating ceiling of the aircraft. Impotent in the air, the British attempted to mount attacks to destroy the airships or their operating bases, the enormous Zeppelin sheds with bombing raids. The first British use of aircraft for offensive purposes away from the front lines was by the Royal Naval Air Service. 
In a break from their reconnaissance role, the first RNAS raids were directed at Zeppelin sheds at Dusseldorf and Cologne in September 1914, while in October a Zeppelin was hit whilst in its shed in Dusseldorf. One problem with this approach of trying to destroy the airships on the ground was the range of the Zeppelins. Their bases were a long way away, far beyond the operating range of heavier-than-air aircraft. To counter this, in a raid on the Cuxhaven Zeppelin sheds on Christmas Day 1914, British seaplanes were carried to within striking distance by improvised carrier ships, which it was planned would launch their planes and then recover the returning aircraft before carrying them home. As a part of this raid, the German Zeppelin L6 spotted the carrier ship Empress and attempted to bomb her, but the airship wasn't manoeuvrable enough to keep up with the evasive action taken by the captain. As Captain Frederick Bowhill commanding the Empress wrote, My method of defence was to watch carefully as she manoeuvred into position overhead. I went hard over. I could see her rudders put over to follow me. I put my helm the other way. Using this technique, the Empress was able to avoid the 310-pound bombs dropped by L6, leading Commander Tirrett, who was in charge of the Royal Navy's Harwich Force, to remark that Zeppelins are not to be thought of as regards ships. Stupid great things, but very beautiful. It seemed a pity to shoot them. When L6 ended the attack, it limped home with damage from more than 600 bullet holes in its skin. The Christmas Day raid on Cuxhaven failed to neutralise the Zeppelin threat, but it did help to prove that the airships were not a credible threat to shipping. However, the threat to the home front was still weighing heavily on Churchill, now in charge of defending the home front as First Lord of the Admiralty. He wrote... There are approximately 20 German airships that can reach London now from the Rhine, each carrying a ton of high explosives. They could traverse the English part of the journey, coming and going in the dark hours. The weather hazards are considerable, but there is no known means of preventing the airships coming, and not much chance of punishing them on return. The unavenged destruction of non-combatant life may therefore be very considerable. Churchill's friend, Admiral Jackie Fisher, was also concerned and advocated executing any Zeppelin crews who happened to fall into British hands. To his credit, Churchill didn't share this view, but it acts as a sign of the reaction that these novel weapons could provoke. There was a kind of split personality in the British view of airships. There was little impetus to use the technology themselves as the limitations of the ships were only too apparent. However, when operated by the Germans, the airship became a daunting terror weapon with a greatly inflated reputation for being able to roam freely over enemy territory. In reality, this is understandable. It is too easy to imagine that the enemy is vastly superior in technology. If the Allies had greater insight into the daily trials of operating the airships, they would have been greatly reassured. Some in the German Zeppelin fleet were also seduced by the idea of what they could achieve with powerful airships. The ability to fight beyond the confines of the Western and Eastern Front campaigns was a key element of German naval strategy, with the bombing raids being seen as a part of the overall effort against the Allies. Alongside the U-boat campaign, the strategic air campaign was also intended to take the battle beyond the trenches of France and Belgium. In January 1915, the Zeppelin raids against Britain began in earnest, as the German Navy split its air effort between reconnaissance for naval missions and a gradual move towards the strategic bombing of England. The general pattern for a bombing raid against Britain was for one or more Zeppelins to set off in the afternoon of one day, fly through the night to bomb its targets, 
and then returned to its base the following day. Flights of 20 to 30 hours were routine, and the airships had hammocks to allow the crew to rest, and hot plates heated from the engine exhaust fumes to allow food to be heated. Following routes over Belgium and the North Sea, to avoid the Western Front, the airships were targeted against pre-agreed objectives. The nature of these objectives changed over time as 1915 developed. At first the Kaiser was insistent that military targets only such as docks, arsenals and military bases could be attacked. However it was never really practical that these constraints could be sustained given the technical limitations and cities soon became legitimate targets. The first raid took place on the 19th and 20th of January 1915. L3, an M-type Zeppelin, set out to bomb targets along the Humber estuary, but due to navigation difficulties decided to bomb Great Yarmouth, 150 miles from the initial target instead. The Zeppelins carried a mixture of explosives and incendiary bombs made from metal canisters with a mixture of thermite, benzol and tar inside, all wrapped in a tarred rope and designed to burn intensely and start fires in the houses and factories below. L3 dropped seven incendiaries and six high-explosive bombs, hitting a number of buildings and killing two civilians. The raids were bringing the war into areas and to people unaccustomed to the threat of death and injury, exposing civilians to the danger of war, hitherto only experienced by those near the front lines. The blurring of the boundaries between military and civilian was keenly felt. For example, some coroners, when passing verdict on early victims, recorded verdicts of murder against the Kaiser and the Crown Prince of Germany. March 1915 saw the first use of a new German invention, the cloud car. This was a capsule dangled below the airship on a cable. A crew member sat inside and was lowered two and a half to 3,000 feet below, allowing the Zeppelin to remain out of sight in the clouds, while still able to see the ground. It's hard to imagine, but duty in the cloud car, dangling alone by a slender cable, was considered a privilege, as it was the only place where it was permissible to smoke because there was no risk of igniting the hydrogen. During its first use over Calais, the cloud car was deployed at 2,500 feet, while the Zeppelin hid above in the clouds. Despite searchlights roaming the sky, the airship remained concealed, and spent about 45 minutes bombing the docks, railway installations and the town's arsenal. By May, the Kaiser had agreed that London could be bombed, but certain restrictions were imposed, such as avoiding the royal family's residences. Then, in July, the city of London could be struck, but only outside normal banking hours. By the end of July, anywhere in London was considered fair game, with the exception of historic buildings such as the Tower of London and St Paul's Cathedral. From the ground, the Zeppelins looked and sounded like nothing ever seen in the sky. They approached with an odd clunkety clunkety noise, as if a tram with rusty wheels were travelling through the sky. Sylvia Pankhurst, the suffragette campaigner, recalled that the Zeppelins flew with an ominous grinding, growing in volume, throbbing, pulsating, filling the air with its sound. On the ground, air raid warnings were non-existent or rudimentary. Whilst the French were soon installing sirens to warn of raids, in Britain the warnings consisted generally of the local policemen cycling around wearing a take cover placard. In some areas the Boy Scouts helped, blowing bugles from the back of trucks and carts driven around the affected areas. In some towns, when a raid was expected, the electricity and gas companies cut the power so that the lights would go out, acting as a warning and concealing the town from above. However, given the novelty of the Zeppelins, human nature meant that not everyone rushed to shelter. The newspaper, 
the evening news, was to remark in April 1916 that The most surprising thing is the way everybody rushes into the street. Nobody takes any notice of the police warning. They just look upon these raids as a good show and are all eager to miss nothing. One interesting aspect of the difficulty of navigating accurately is that the German after-action reports are often wildly inaccurate about where their bombs were dropped and the effect they had. Each mission intended to target a particular town or military target, but was often forced to improvise new targets if conditions meant that they couldn't go where they intended. The mission reports were a litany of intended and actual targets. Picking one at random, the raid by L-24 on the 1st of October 1916 by Lieutenant Robert Koch intended to attack Manchester, but ended up killing an off-duty soldier in Hitchin, Hertfordshire, about 170 miles away from the planned target. This wasn't precision bombing by any stretch of the imagination. Additionally, reports from the raids often claim that bombs were dropped on a target, but when compared to where the bombs actually fell, reveal that either the captain was totally lost, or was embellishing his report to make it seem more accurate than it was. Once the Zeppelin was airborne, unless they called for a fairly inaccurate radio direction finding fix, it was only the captain or the navigator who had even the slightest inkling where they were. Neither the crew, nor anyone back at base in Belgium or Germany, had any idea what their Zeppelins actually achieved, and it's not hard to suspect, at least later in the war, that some captains were deliberately dropping their bombs as safely as possible and then fabricating their reports to satisfy their bosses. A case in point is Von Butler, who we encountered earlier. He was one of the most experienced Zeppelin commanders and yet developed a reputation amongst British observers that he habitually avoided coming far inland. For example, on the 2nd of September 1916, Von Butler reported he'd bombed London but instead had bombed various villages in Norfolk and Suffolk. Again on the 23rd of September, he reported bombing London, but didn't really go beyond the Norfolk coast. There's no record of his bombs landing even on British soil. Timid, unlucky, a liar or shrewd? You judge. He did, however, survive the war. Even the radio direction finding system developed by the Germans wasn't capable of resolving the fundamental unreliability of airship navigation. This system involved the Zeppelins broadcasting a message requesting a radio navigation fix. Remote monitoring stations recorded the direction and strength of the radio signals, allowing the airship's position to be triangulated. Once the position had been calculated, the information was radioed onto the airship. Despite this system, which incidentally had the disadvantage that it resulted in coded position information being broadcast for anyone to record, Zeppelin mission reports often reveal the navigation difficulties they experienced. As such, unlike in the Second World War, the Germans weren't really capable of returning to any target smaller than London over and over again. Instead, the raiders roamed over multiple towns, distributing their bomb payloads on an almost random basis. Nevertheless, the Zeppelin raids had a disproportionate impact on the country, compared with their military value. In reality, very few people were killed, and even if nothing had been done to combat the Zeppelin raids, it's unlikely that the death toll would have been significantly higher, as bombs just couldn't be delivered reliably into population centres. It's certain that, even unchecked, the outcome of the war would never have been changed by the Zeppelins. A raid on Edinburgh at the beginning of April 1915, killed 13 and injured 24. 
In response, the regalia of Scotland, the Scottish crown, scepter and sword of state were moved out of the crown room in Edinburgh Castle and were placed in a bomb-proof vault. However, later in the war, when the threat was reduced, the regalia were put back on display for the benefit of colonial and American troops who were stationed in the city. The 13th and 14th of October 1915 saw the highest death toll of any raid against England during the war. Five Zeppelins bombed the East Coast and London, killing 71 people and injuring 128 as bombs fell on villages, a military barracks and London's theatre district. As the bombs dropped on London, political pressure grew for action. The first reaction of the government was to impose reporting restrictions to prevent panic from spreading. The Defence of the Realm Act had given the government wide-reaching executive powers, including censorship of the press, and these were invoked to suppress news of the Zeppelins. One notice to editors read, It is undesirable that too much space be given to describing Zeppelin raids. The actual military damage that has been done is slight, but at the same time, so long as the Germans think that the raids have great effect, they will be continued and long accounts tend to produce an impression both in England and Germany that they are of greater importance than they are in reality. The second reaction was to hurriedly improvise some defences, with mobile searchlights driving around the supposed path of the airships and Boer War-era guns being set up as anti-aircraft guns. Over time, some French anti-aircraft guns were imported and aircraft were pulled back from the Western Front, but in the first instance, the defences were woeful. On the 31st of January and 1st of February 1916, a major raid was sent against Liverpool, but fog and navigation issues meant that a number of towns such as Scunthorpe, Derby, Burton-on-Trent, Dudley and Loughborough were bombed, killing 70 and injuring 113. While some raids succeeded, there were many more that failed, as Zeppelins dropped bombs on farmland or caused negligible damage. However, despite the limited destructive effect of the raids, there was a significant disruptive effect. In some areas, workers refused to work on night shifts, morale was affected and thousands of people were engaged in defence activities. Amid calls for improved defences, aircraft were diverted from the Western Front to the defence of Britain. As well as losing the services of those aircraft where they were needed, pilots were to lose their lives as they were forced to learn the difficult art of night flying. As one pilot, Arthur Harris, recalled, The station commander who was also the duty pilot, went up and killed himself before he'd got a hundred yards beyond the end flare. The next night, it was my turn. It is perhaps the impact of having to organise and resource defences that was the greatest contribution to the German war effort from the Zeppelin campaign. In exchange for relatively small amounts of German lives, British industry and war-making ability was disrupted and distracted. The wide-ranging attacks on the Midlands at the end of January 1916 provoked a strong public reaction that something had to be done to end the menace. Foreign businesses were attacked and the press led a concerted attack on the Asquith government. Despite regular attacks throughout 1915, it was this raid on unprotected towns that seemed to have struck a nerve. It was all very well the Zeppelins attacking London, which had its searchlights and anti-aircraft guns to fight back, but attacking defenceless towns was quite a different matter and something needed to be done. Local councils held meetings and a conference was held on the 8th of February 1916 in Birmingham that called together the mayors, town clerks and chief constables from major towns in the Midlands. Neville Chamberlain, yes that one, 
chaired the meeting and was duly elected to the committee formed to liaise with the military authorities. The committee met with Sir John French, who'd commanded the British Expeditionary Force in France in the opening months of the war, and was now in charge of home defence shortly afterwards. Sir John French had been coming under pressure from multiple directions, and now he acted to bring together the disparate elements of the defensive systems together. Britain had a well-developed code-breaking operation run by the Navy, under the name of Room 40 at the Admiralty. So it often knew when the raid was coming. As well as code-breaking, the British were also intercepting and interpreting the radio direction-finding calls issued by the Zeppelins that gave their position away. Once over the land, the army had spotters looking for Zeppelins and calling in what they saw to their headquarters. Police forces were warned that raids were coming, but there was no system for getting the warnings out. The various bits of the effort needed bringing together. One of the first decisions made was to clarify who was responsible for what with the Royal Navy Air Service taking responsibility for the Zeppelins as they approached over the sea, and the Royal Flying Corps being responsible for them once they'd crossed the coastline. Most importantly, it was decided that all signals from both Room 40 and the Army's direction-finding operation would all be routed through the GHQ Home Forces control. By the end of 1916, the Army had around 17,000 spotters deployed on nights when raids were predicted by Room 40. As they saw or heard the Zeppelins, the spotters called them into their substation that in turn relayed the news to GHQ. This way an overall picture could be developed. The overall picture was plotted onto a map table in the central operations rooms for the various regions, in much the same way as bomber raids would be plotted during the Battle of Britain in World War II. Once plotted, anti-aircraft batteries and night fighter squadrons could be targeted against the raids. It was the establishment of this air defence system that gave Britain the foundations needed to combat the Zeppelin raids, but to really turn the tide, effective anti-Zeppelin weaponry was needed first. It was all very well being able to track the incoming attackers, but the Zeppelins were generally free to roam without fear of destruction. Whilst the airships were slower than fixed-wing aircraft, generally unable to travel more than around 60 miles an hour, they could fly higher and for much longer, as well as the height advantage most planes could fly for just a few hours, whereas a Zeppelin could fly for 25 to 30 hours. Even if a pursuing plane got close, the airships could climb out of trouble at a much greater rate than their pursuers, and then stay out of reach for as long as they needed to. Despite this advantage, there were still encounters between Zeppelins and defending aircraft, and the airships were routinely shot at by anti-aircraft guns. The defenders were to find that the Zeppelins were surprisingly resilient and difficult to bring down. In theory, being filled with highly flammable hydrogen gas, the airships should have burnt at the slightest spark. After all, their own crews took fire prevention seriously as a matter of course. But it was increasingly evident that an airship could weather a storm of bullets ripping through her cured fabric skin and gas envelopes and still get home. The problem was that normal bullets would simply fly straight through the Zeppelin without hitting anything, puncturing a few gas envelopes as they went. A Zeppelin could lose gas from some of the envelopes, but still make it home. What was needed was a way of releasing the hydrogen from the envelopes, mixing it with air, and then administering a spark to the volatile mixture. The first Zeppelin destroyed in air-to-air -air combat was LZ-37. On the 7th of June 1915, the airship had been on a mission to bomb England, but had aborted the mission due to engine trouble. As LZ-37 returned home, Sub-Lieutenant Reginald Warnford who had been sent in a French Moraine parasol to attack Zeppelin sheds at Berkham saint agate in Belgium, was flying at around 11,000 feet when he chanced upon a Zeppelin. 
As it passed below him, at an altitude of around 4,000 feet, Warnford gave chase, and a game of cat and mouse ensued for the next hour as the airship rose to 11,000 feet, and he tried to shoot it down with a carbine. Eventually, he was able to fly just 150 to 200 feet above the Zeppelin and drop a 20-pound bomb. Warnford was to recount, Whilst releasing the last, there was an explosion which lifted my machine and turned it over. The aeroplane was out of control for a short period, went into a nosedive, but control was regained. I then saw the Zeppelin on the ground in flames. Warnford then found that his aircraft had lost power, and he was forced to land in French territory to repair a fuel line before cadging more fuel and heading home safely. He was rewarded with the French Légion d'honneur and the Victoria Cross for his success. Sadly, Warnford was to be killed just ten days later in a flying accident. Warnford's success, while seen as a great step forward, actually led the quest for countermeasures against the Zeppelin threat astray. Development effort was funnelled into a new weapon called the Rankin Dart. This dart was designed to be dropped onto airships, becoming lodged in their skin, before igniting an incendiary charge that would destroy the Zeppelin. Almost impossible to use, in the end Rankin darts were only used once in an inconclusive attack on an already crippled Zeppelin on the 1st of April 1916 by Alfred Brandon of No. 19 Reserve Aeroplane Squadron flying a B-2EA fighter. Unfortunately for the Allies, the Rankin dart represented a blind alley that detracted from the development of weapons that allowed aircraft to attack in a more practical manner. Despite this distraction, by mid-1916, incendiary and explosive bullets were available, along with machine guns fixed to a decent night fighter. The BE-2C aircraft was, by this stage, not suitable for surviving operational duty on the Western Front, but it was easy to fly. It was this attribute that made it an excellent night fighter. In the night, the danger of being outclassed in air combat was negligible, but the dangers of losing control over the aircraft were magnified. Naturally stable in flight, this meant that flying in minimal visibility or flying by instruments alone became more practical. As a part of its transformation, the aircraft were painted black and were kitted out with wing-mounted machine guns that could be clamped into position pointing up at an angle. Now this near-obsolescent aircraft became an ideal platform for shooting into the belly of an airship. It was the shift towards acknowledging that Zeppelins should be attacked from underneath, rather than from above, that, after an awkward period where both Rankin darts and machine guns were carried, led to a sustained period of success against the Zeppelins. The move to incendiary and explosive bullets took time, as there was some uncertainty over the legality of the weapons. Novel bullets that were designed to cause maximum damage had been prohibited in the Hague Convention of 1899 due to the effects on the human body, and there were concerns that these new bullets would be seen as being too similar. However, this objection was overcome by a stipulation that the bullets would only be used against the Zeppelins. Ironically, the Hague Convention had also prohibited dropping explosives from balloons, but only for a five-year moratorium period. By the summer of 1916, with the new types of ammunition such as Pomeroy's nitroglycerine bullets, Brock's explosive bullets, and Buckingham phosphorus tracer bullets, the hunters now had a weapon that could reliably ignite hydrogen. On the 2nd of September 1916, Lieutenant William Leif Robinson of 39 Squadron, Royal Flying Corps, became the first person to shoot down a Zeppelin in the air when he brought down SL-11 with a mixture of explosive and incendiary bullets. Taking off from Sutton Farm, he climbed steadily for nearly an hour to reach around 10,000 feet, 
Patrolling over the Thames estuary on the approach to London, he spotted the Zeppelin lit up by searchlights from Woolwich at around 12,000 feet and closed in. He lost the airship in the clouds and searched for another hour before finding SL-11 over Hertfordshire. Once in range, he emptied two magazines with a mixture of new Brock and Pomeroy incendiary and explosive rounds into the airship, but to no effect. Trying again from a range of around 500 to 800 feet below, he fired his third magazine into the Zeppelin and was rewarded by a sudden glow in the Zeppelin's tail region. It literally lit up the sky around me. I saw my machine lit up as in the firelight and sat still, staring at the wonderful sight before me. As I watched the huge mass gradually turn on end and gradually sink, one glowing, blazing mass, I gradually realised what I had done and grew wild with excitement. Leif Robinson was in fact so wild with excitement that he had accidentally shot off a bit of his own wing in the attack and now celebrated by firing off his warning flares. SL-11 fell burning to the ground, crashing near Cuffley, about 30 miles north of central London. Within days, tens of thousands of sightseers came to see the wreckage, so many that special trains were scheduled to cope with the demand. The crew are now buried at Cannock Chase German Military Cemetery, alongside 4,787 of their compatriots from the two world wars. Leif Robinson was awarded the Victoria Cross. He was given £4,000 from a consortium of businessmen, that's over a million pounds in today's money, and was fated in a series of publicity events before returning to operational flying in 1917. He was shot down on his first operation over the Western Front and taken prisoner. Surviving the war, he returned home after the armistice, but caught Spanish flu and died shortly afterwards. Leif Robinson's success marked the point when the tables turned and the balance of power shifted. Soon, successes against the Zeppelins were mounting up as the new tactics and ammunition were augmented by standing patrols over London. Zeppelin L-32 was shot down overnight on the 23rd of September by 2nd Lieutenant Frederick Sowry, who was aged just 23 at the time. The airship crashed at the village of Great Bursted, near Billericay. The same night, L-33 was forced down when it was hit by a mixture of anti-aircraft fire and an attack by Alfred Brandon. If you were paying attention earlier, you'll remember him from the only successful attack with Rankin Darts. The crew survived and were captured by one Special Constable Edgar Nicholas as they walked along the road, presumably heading for home on foot. As the balance of power changed, the dangers began to take their toll on the Zeppelin crews as their already dangerous missions became yet more lethal. As Pitt Klein, an engineer who flew with L-31, was to write, It is only a matter of time before we join the rest. Everyone admits that they feel it. Our nerves are ruined by mistreatment. If anyone should say that he was not haunted by visions of burning airships, then he would be a braggart. Klein himself only survived the war because he wasn't on the fateful final mission of L-31, where the crew were faced with the awful dilemma of burning alive or leaping to their deaths, a topic that had been much discussed amongst the Zeppelin crews. On the 1st of October 1916, Sub-Lieutenant Walston Tempest of 39 Squadron RFC was on patrol over London when he saw L-31 in the distance and closed in. Despite anti-aircraft fire from the ground and having to manually pump fuel into his engine following a mechanical failure, he successfully attacked the airship and observed, As I began firing, I noticed her begin to go red inside like an enormous Chinese lantern. 
the airship crashed to the ground at Potter's Bar in Hertfordshire, with members of the crew having to decide whether to jump or burn. Captain Lieutenant Heinrich Mathy, one of the most experienced Zeppelin captains, made his decision and jumped to his death. His body was found near the wreckage, embedded inches into the earth. Tempest himself crashed on landing, but got away with a bang on the head. Visiting the site of the Zeppelin's wreckage, he found that the only way he could get close enough to see was to pay a shilling to an enterprising farmer alongside all the other sightseers. Tempest was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his exploits that night. Despite near obsolescence as defences improved, the threat from the air continued as Zeppelin raids continued and from May 1917 German Gotha bombers began a campaign of raids. Between May 1917 and May 1918, the London Underground was used to shelter from attacks by over 300,000 people seeking a place of safety in the days before organised air raid shelters. Despite the increased risks, the Zeppelin fleet continued to fly regular missions during the latter years of the war, dropping bombs over Britain. The last raid against Britain took place on the 5th and 6th of August 1918, when five airships took off to bomb the Midlands. Bombs were dropped with little effect, and four of the airships returned safely. However, one Zeppelin, L-70, the newest and most powerful Zeppelin in the fleet, capable of operating at 23,000 feet and travelling at 80 miles an hour, did not make it back. The airship was shot down by Pilot Major Egbert Cabri and Gunner Major Robert Leckie over the Norfolk coast. As well as being a new Zeppelin, the airship had an illustrious passenger on board, none other than Peter Strasser, the German leader of airships. With his death, and with the military situation facing Germany deteriorating fast, the Zeppelin campaign more or less ended, with just three more raids before the end of the war. Over the course of the war, the Germans had built around 80 Zeppelins to add to the limited numbers they'd started with. Of the total fleet, 76 were destroyed before the end of the war through a mixture of accidents and enemy action. Whilst the airships were easily damaged or written off, the crews often lived to fight another day, often walking away from the mangled remains of their aircraft. Depending on your definition of a crash, 19 Zeppelins were destroyed by crashes, hard landings and other mishaps, 9 were destroyed by fire on the ground, while 6 burst into flames in the air, most likely due to fires caused by lightning strikes. Enemy action accounted for 33, with 21 brought down by anti-aircraft fire, which generally resulted in a crash landing due to loss of gas, and 12 were destroyed by enemy aircraft. The remainder were damaged in accidents in or around their storage sheds. The last Zeppelin mission of the war took place on the 13th of October 1918, bringing the campaign to an anticlimactic end when two airships were launched to provide air reconnaissance for German ships engaged in minesweeping activities. Heavy cloud intervened and the airships could see nothing, returning to base safely. For the crews involved, this was probably a satisfactory result. As the war came to its end, the Zeppelin fleet was carved up amongst the Allies as part of the armistice agreement. At around the same time in June 1919 that the German high seas fleet was being scuttled in the deep waters of Scarpa Flow, a number of airships were destroyed on the ground by a small group of German officers just as they were due to be handed over in order to prevent the ships from falling into enemy hands. Overall, during the course of the war, 1,413 British people were killed and 3,408 wounded by the German air campaign. French casualty figures are harder to come by, 
but in Paris, around 250 were killed and 600 wounded by bombing from airships and fixed-wing aircraft. In the grand scheme of things, this was a tiny percentage of the casualties caused by the war. Take for example the Great Halifax Munitions Explosion in Canada in December 1917. In this single event, around 2,000 civilians were killed when the French ship, the SS Mont Blanc, blew up while carrying high explosives. Another perspective is to consider that 250 people were killed in Paris by long-range artillery bombardment between March and August 1918, all with minimal risk to German personnel. As a weapon themselves, the Zeppelins were militarily insignificant. However, when acting as a reconnaissance aircraft, their endurance and altitude made them valuable. And it's possible to imagine an alternate version of events where, with a slight change of weather, the Germans could have enjoyed greater success at the Battle of Jutland. But the inherent weaknesses of the airship were their Achilles heel and tended to outweigh their usefulness. When you look at the full catalogue of German airship raids, it's remarkable how many mishaps befell the crews as the dirigibles crash, explode, suffer from engine loss, simply float away or break up on landing. The scale of the effort required to keep these machines operational must have been enormous and in my mind probably wouldn't have stood up to a cost-benefit analysis if it wasn't for their potential as a reconnaissance platform and the psychological effect on the enemy. Whilst it's unlikely that the Germans would ever achieve the strategic bombing objectives that certain commanders hoped for, the campaign did have a powerful propaganda effect. Here we can glimpse the key unintended legacy of the Zeppelin campaign. The establishment through trial and error of a workable British air defence capability. The opportunity to develop this capability in what with hindsight was a low stakes environment was to create the foundation of the successful defence during the Battle of Britain in 1940. The lessons and techniques learnt in the First World War against an enemy that often didn't know which towns it was bombing and was struggling to stay aloft long enough to return home were invaluable when pitched against the Luftwaffe's more capable forces in 1940. If the chaos of the 31st of January 1916 raid were replayed in 1940, perhaps events in the Second World War would have played out differently. I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. If it's the first time you've listened, thanks very much for joining us. Please do take a time to listen to the previous episode, which covered the run-up to and signing of the armistice that ended the war. If you enjoyed the show, you can show your appreciation via our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com and type in 1914 and you'll find us at the top of the search list. There you'll be able to find the show notes and detailed bibliography for this episode and you'll be able to find out how to get some great rewards when you support the project. Finally, thanks again for listening, and hope you'll join us again for the next episode.